Okay. Um, coming to the end of Nehemiah, actually, this is the last chapter of the book, but we're going to be spending two more weeks in Nehemiah. There's two things that I left on the table that I want to come back to, so bring these for two more weeks, um, but we are at the end of the chapter. You know, everybody loves the stories that end, and they all lived happily ever after, right? Just spent the evening with the grandkids last night, and everybody from being a little child loves stories with happy endings, um, right? Stories like the fairy tale Cinderella story, like, like going out on top in your trade or in your craft, like John Elway did, right? Winning a Super Bowl and retiring, or Peyton Manning for the Denver Broncos. Um, boy, that's awfully quiet in here. Did you notice I'm still living way in the past? Um, so take advantage and just enjoy the time that you guys have as Chiefs fans. But we, we love for endings like that. That's how we love for things to finish. And it would be great if Nehemiah had ended, ended his book in chapter 12 with the big celebration, all the praise and worship and the thanksgiving. But it doesn't end there. It actually ends the opposite of what you would expect. So I want you to turn to chapter 13. That's where we're going to be. Chapter 13, page 64. If you sat down and numbered your pages, if not, it just says 13.1 at the top. We're getting towards the back. Um, turn there with me. And before I start in your booklet, I'm going to ask you to do something if, you, if you're note-taking in this. I want you to draw a line un between verses 4 and 5. It's a little bit of a squiggly line, but I want you to draw a line under it. There's an important reason because the chronology of this chapter isn't totally to get at, easy to get at first. It takes a little bit of thinking. And then what I want you to do at the very top of the page, it starts on that day and on that day is actually chapter 12, what we talked about last week. So this is a continuation. The first three verses are a continuation of chapter 12. So write chapter 12 above on that day so that you know what day it's talking about. And then under this line in the margin, underneath the line we just drew, I want you to write later because the stuff that comes in the rest of the chapter came later, actually probably quite a bit later than the first four verses. So, okay. Um, and we're going to see that when we get to verses 6 and 7. But let's jump in. So verse 1, verse 1. On that day, so on the day of that celebration in chapter 12, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted in the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Um, if you want to go back and look at that Balaam story, it's found in Numbers 22, 23, 24, 25. It's a great story if you've never read it. Um, but I want to say two things about these verses that I think are important. And the, the, the first one is this. This is not what the text of the Torah says at all. It's not at all what the text says. Um, this is actually a classic example of misinterpretation of the Bible. I want to show you what that text actually says in Deuteronomy, and here's what it says. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants for how long? For 10 generations. Do you remember what they said? For ever, okay, for 10 generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, to the assembly of the Lord. These nations did not welcome you with food and water when you came out of Egypt. Instead, they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in a distant Aram Naharaim to curse you. And so what we see is they actually are playing loose with Scripture here. They're replacing the ten generations with ever. 
and they should know better. I've mentioned her twice. I'm going to mention her one more time. One of the great heroes of the Old Testament is Ruth, who was a Moabitess, who married into the Hebrew family and was a part of the assembly. She married Boaz. Her grandson was a grandson or great-grandson, whichever. Her descendant was King David, the great king, and the Jesus, the Messiah, would come from her. Again, she's a Moabitess, and she lived right after the end of the 10 generations, okay? So they knew better than to say, ever, we're never going to allow that. But it gets worse because their misinterpretation of Deuteronomy then leads to misapplication in verse in verse um, 3, where they say, basically, this applies to everybody of foreign descent. We're not letting any of them in the assembly. Here's what I think is going on here, a couple of things. One, that they had allowed the text to become a pretext for their nationalism and their ethnocentrism. That's probably what was going on. J.I. Packer's written a very interesting thing that oftentimes when revivals happen, which is what chapter 12 was, that revivals come with excess that comes in them. And he says one of the excesses is people start misinterpreting and applying Scripture in light of their, in light of their experience. Okay. But here's what I want to show you, how that this was totally not what the Torah said at all. In Leviticus 19.34, it says this, "...the foreigner residing among you must be treated, treated as your native-born." You love them as yourself because you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But this one's even more powerful. Deuteronomy 31, 12. Assemble the people. That's what verses 1 to 3 are about. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. So misinterpreting and misapplying. Okay, enough said because I have bigger fish to fry. Um, I'm going to say one thing about this a little later on, but I want to, enough of that. Now we're going to see in the rest of the chapter that they are going to encounter, Nehemiah is going to encounter four major problems going on in the community. And we can see the first of those four major problems in verses four and five. And problem one is this, it's the desecration of the temple. Now verse four, I want you to put parentheses around this if you're in the note-taking mood in your book. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. And what that's saying chronologically is before this revival of chapter 12, he had been put in charge of the storehouse. So that's kind of far back in the past. Then what we're going to read now is what happened more after this revival. So continuing, he, Eliashib, was closely associated with Tobiah. You remember that guy? Talk about him in a minute. And he... Um, Eliashib had provided him, Tobiah, with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So wow, here he is again, Tobiah, rearing his ugly head again. We thought we were done with him in chapter 6. If you remember, he is one of the main antagonists to the Jewish people at their time in their history right? He has a Jewish name, so he is Jewish, but he's an official in the country of Ammon off to their east, that country being one of the main enemies of Israel. And if you remember, through his son's marriage and his own marriage, he had entered into, he had entered into a relationship with some of the key officials of the city, so he had gotten himself highly connected, all right? And here's what we learn here, that all along, even after chapter 6, with all the great stuff happening in 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, he still has his finger in the pie. He's still stirring the pot because evil never sleeps, does it? 
And yet, here's what's amazing is here we learn that his deep, this deep connection he has to the high priest. And it was actually the high priest, Eliashib, who was the one who let him into the temple to set up an office in there. To set up an office. Knowing, him knowing that it was sacrilege to do that. That it desecrated the temple. Do you remember in Nehemiah 6, they were trying to draw Nehemiah into the temple, trick him into there to ruin his reputation? And Nehemiah said, no. Because we know from Numbers 18, 6, and 7 that other than the priests in the, the core of that temple area, nobody else is allowed to go in there without it being sacrilege. So Eliashib, lead, he, he allows something that desecrates the temple. And now Nehemiah adds an important aside in verse 6. But, so he, he wants to make this clear, draw a circle around that, kind of a heavy one, but, because buts are important, Right? But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. So here's what we learn. If you remember, he went to Jerusalem to do the rebuilding in the 20th year of of Artaxerxes. Now it's the 32nd, so he had been the rebuilder and the governor of that city for 12 years that he had actually gone back, we presume to become the, um, the cupbearer again, because he had told Artaxerxes he would come back. And so he continues in the rest of verse 6 and 7, sometime later I asked for permission, and I came back to Jerusalem. So we don't know why, but at some point he's like, I want to go check on things, that's probably what he wanted to do. But when he got there, what he found was a mess. It was a mess. We just saw the first one, that desecration in the temple. So I want you to get ready, okay? I want you to strap in because we're about ready to go on a roller coaster ride in the rest of chapter 13, okay? Um, It is a wild ride, trust me. And in the words of Derek Kidner in his commentary, he said, Nehemiah's first visit to Jerusalem was a whirlwind. His second visit was all fire and earthquake. So get ready for fire and earthquake. So back to the text. He continues where he left off. In verse 5, okay, um, here I learned about the evil thing, and I'd like you, we're going to underline some important words. Underline that word evil. I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. He's not happy, right? And true to his nature, he acts. So verse 8, I think that was verse 7 we were in, not verse 5, sorry. Verse 8, I was greatly displeased. There's that word great again. It occurs in this book a lot. Greatly displeased. I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God which, with the grain offerings and the incense. So he acts. And now we see problem two in verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. Okay? So we'll see this later, but the giving had stopped. The giving had stopped. The people had stopped giving, and the temple ministers had to leave the city to go back to their, the fields out of town so they could even support themselves. And again, Nehemiah Acts, verse 11. So I rebuked. Now circle that word. We're going to see that several times in this chapter. I rebuked the officials, and I asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. If you remember in chapter 10, when they made that great oath and commitment of what they were going to do for God, they ended it by saying, we commit ourselves to not neglect the house of God. They weren't going to do it. Specifically, they were going to give of their first fruits and their tithes to make sure it operated functionally, but they said, we're not going to, we're not going to balk at that. We're not going to fail at that. 
And that's exactly what they have done. Exactly what they've done. So verse 12. So all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil in the storerooms. I put Shalemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms. And I made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. Underline that. Because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. So the people begin to give their tithes again, their first fruit offerings, into the storerooms, and he cleans house and reappoints people in the temple, people that are trustworthy. And this is so Nehemiah. He's a man of integrity. We've seen that. And he wants people of integrity. And we saw in chapter 7, if you remember back in chapter 7, that when he appointed leaders, he made sure that they were people who were trustworthy and who feared God above all. Okay? So he's being true to himself. Then verse 14. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have done so faithfully, done for the house of my God and its services. I'd like you to put a box around that in your text, around that verse. It's very significant, and we're going to come back to it in a little bit. So that was problem two. They quit giving. Problem three begins in verse 15. In those days, I saw people in Judah tread, treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on the donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. So problem three is they're violating the Sabbath. And again, he steps in and he does something about it. So continuing at the end of verse 15, therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked, circle that, that's our second occurrence, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this wicked thing? Now underline the word wicked. Again, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Underline the word, what is this wicked thing you were doing desecrating, underline desecrating, really strong word, both of those, right? desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your ancestors do the very same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on the city? And now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath? Okay, the Sabbath mattered to God. We learn in Chronicles that the, the 70 years God set for their exile was based upon the fact that for 490 years they had neglected the Sabbath year. So this was a big deal to him. And so he's like, like, remember, like the exile, remember what caused, what was part of causing all of that? And like, I, I envision Nehemiah, like one of my favorite movies. He's like, hello, hello, anybody home, McFly? Are you listening? Are you paying attention? So verse 19, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. The sheriff's back in town, isn't he? I love that. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath day. I wouldn't either. And then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath holy. And then verse 22 ends with Nehemiah's second prayer. Remember me for this also, my God. Show me mercy. Show mercy to me according to your great 
love, and that being that great Hebrew word for love, chesed, God's unfailing, sacrificial, unconditional, ongoing love. Put a box around that verse. It's the second time he's prayed something like that to God. Second such prayer. And now the last problem is in verse 23. Last problem is in verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. So they've already abandoned on their commitment from chapter 10 to soul oneness in marriage. They've already blown that off, right? And it was beginning to affect the next generation. This is serious. At that time, the Torah and the Old Testament, the amount they had to that point was only in Hebrew, so half of their children could not read it, could not hear it, listen to it, understand it. They had essentially virtually no access to the Word of God because of this. And that, by the way, is one of the key reasons God wants spiritual oneness in marriage. When I spoke on this two weeks ago, I left this one thing on the table because I knew it would come up this week. I want to show you again that very profound text from Malachi 2 that speaks to spiritual oneness in marriage, and I want, you, I want to finish it. So in Malachi 2, it says, Have we not all one Father? Did not one Echad, God, create us? One meaning a community, oneness of plurality, right? Okay. He is... He, he has not the Lord made husband and wife one, echad, in flesh and spirit they are his. And why did he make them echad? Why one? Why does he want spiritual oneness? Because he was seeking godly offspring. He was seeking godly offspring. And I've just got to be honest. I mean, it doesn't take much to observe this. And I'm not, we're not dealing with the past, okay? I'm not, we're not casting stones or anything. But the truth is, is when there's not spiritual oneness in marriage, the, the odds of children following the Lord greatly decrease, greatly decrease. And that's what happened here. And as always, in his tireless zeal for God, Nehemiah acts. And I want to tell you, what he does is pretty over the top, so get ready for a wild ride now, okay? We're doing the loop-de-loop now. Verse 25. I rebuked, so circle that, third time it's occurred in this chapter, I rebuked them, I called curses down on them, I beat some of the men, and I pulled out their hair. Wow. Talk about waking up on the wrong side of the bed, right? He seems a little unhinged, don't you think? I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I need to speak to it like a lot of commentaries don't want to speak to it, I feel like I need to, okay? Several things. First, he called down curses on them, and it's not what it seems. It's not what it seems. If you remember, in chapter 9, verse 38, after their long prayer of chapter 9, they ended their prayer by, and here's what it says, making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and affixing their seals to it. And then in chapter 10, when it continues, binding themselves with a what? with a curse. I asked you to circle that two weeks ago, and here's the reason why, because I knew this was coming. And also an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. So when he's calling down curses on them, it's, this isn't just random. He's actually saying, the thing you said would happen to you, I'm asking God to do that. That's the thing that you agreed to, okay? But there's more. There's this beating people up and pulling people's hair out. 
Seems a little excessive to me. A little excessive. Feels like he's out of control, doesn't it? So what's going on here? Um, This pulling out of his hair was likely, from understanding culture back then, was likely more of a plucking of hair from a beard. I don't know it makes it any better. But in that time in history, it was common that if somebody had done a grave wrong and somebody wanted to demonstrate it, they would pluck out somebody's beard of showing the severity of the offense and to bring scorn upon them, okay? Um, He's not just pulling people's hair out because he's mad, not just because he's mad. And I would also say that doesn't make it right, but at least I understand what's going on, okay? When Ezra encountered the exact same problem about 15 years earlier, he did something similar. I want to show you what he did. He recorded it in his book, the book of Ezra, chapter 9, verse 3, and here's what he said. I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. So Ezra, being a priestly, pastorly dude, did what pastors do. He beat himself up, okay? Right? Isn't that cool? But Nehemiah, true to his bent, a man for action, a zealous guy, he beats other people up and pulls out other people's hair. I want to drop a key biblical, a key principle of biblical interpretation here, if you don't mind, a principle that applies to this verse and also verses 1, 2, and 3, where they misapplied the text of Deuteronomy. And here's the principle. Just because a biblical character does something or says something doesn't mean God approves. It doesn't mean God approves. Of course, except for Jesus, okay? He's the one exception. So anytime I read anything in the scripture that seems a little off or a little weird, I need to look at the whole scripture and ask, does really God approve of that or not, okay? So that's a really important biblical principle of interpretation. So, all right, let's keep going. Back on the roller coaster. I made them take an oath in God's name, and I said, you are not to give your sons, your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all of this terrible wickedness? Underline that, terrible wickedness. And are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Underline being unfaithful to our God. But it gets even worse because this problem of a lack of spiritual oneness in marriage, it's not just among the people, it's infected the top ranks of the religious leaders. Look at verse 28. One of the sons of Joyada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat of all people, the Horonite. So even the grandson of the high priest had married, gotten into a marriage that did not involve spiritual oneness to somebody who did not love and serve Yahweh. Not only that, he married the daughter of Sanballat, the number one enemy of those people. Isn't that crazy? Wow. So the rest of verse 28. I drove him away from me. This was not the right day to be caught red-handed by Nehemiah doing something wrong, was it? Verse 29. Remember them, my God, because they defiled... Really strong word, would you underline that? They defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Man, strong indictment. And we've seen this prayer before in chapter 6, verse 14, where he said, Lord, remember them. 
And it's just his way of saying, Lord, I'm not the ultimate judge. I give that to you. That's your job. It's not mine. I'm not happy, but you take care of this. And then the last two verses of the chapter, verse 30. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. And then the book ends on the third of Nehemiah's prayers to God for himself. He says, remember me with favor, my God. Again, put a box around that. Remember me with favor, my God. And that's how it ends. Not just chapter 13. That's how the whole book ends. The whole book. And this, by the way, is the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. So here's been my question for a long time. Why this chapter? Why did God put this in this story? Because as I said, stories always win, and they live happily ever after, but not Nehemiah's story, not this book. So I've thought about it. I think God put this in this chapter for two reasons, for two reasons. First, I think God put this chapter here to show us the realities of being a restorer, to remind us that even though we are called to work alongside God, on his mission, joining him in the restoration of all things, one person, one place at a time. We do so as fallen and broken people in a fallen and broken world. And that means not everything will go as we expect. Not everything will go as we expect. So to me, chapter 13 is the bold reality of living as a restorer in this fallen world. That's what chapter 13 is in here for. I mean, as we walk through this chapter, did you notice that they had gone back on every single commitment they made in chapter 10? The commitment to soul oneness in marriage, the commitment to faithfulness and Sabbath keeping, the commitment to generosity and giving through tithing and, first giving, for, and their first fruits of giving. They hadn't kept a single promise, not one, not a thing that they had committed to. And I think that's why verse 10, 14 is so important because Nehemiah had worked with everything. He had poured himself with it. I mean, his heart, his soul, right? His blood, his sweat, his tears into all of this. And in verse 14, I think he's saying it felt to him like everything he did was being blotted out. It was all being blotted out, undone. Yep, the walls were still there, but all the work he had put into the restoring community was all for naught. All of that work, all of that time, all of that energy was for nothing. It was for nothing. The walls were still there, but everything else was crumbling. He went home to keep a promise to Artaxerxes to one day return, came back to check on things, and what he found was a mess, was a mess. He left, and without his leadership, everything went to pot, everything. Almost everything he had done had been undone, and all of this restoring that he had done after he left, everybody else was de-restoring the, re the restoration. Can you imagine how he felt? And don't you totally get Nehemiah? Have you ever been there and done that? And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in this chapter. And we see his frustration all through the chapter. I want to show you three ways I see it. You see it in his prayers. One time in verse 29, he says, remember them. But three times, three times in verses 14, 22, and 31, he says, remember me, my God. Would you please remember me? 
we put, that's why we put boxes around those. I think he's obviously, he's dejected, he's exhausted, and it comes out to God in these three prayers. I think you can see his frustration in a second way. All through this book, he's been a man focused on collaboration, working with team. He's lived as a servant leader. You always heard we language all the time through the book. I mean, when they did the, remember when they prayed last week around the sides of the wall, Ezra was in the front of his group and Nehemiah was in the back of his group. And suddenly he becomes autocratic in this chapter. You can do this later, but go through and circle all the eyes that occur in this chapter. I want to give you some of the key ones. I warned them. I rebuked. I gave orders. I threw him out. I ordered again. I will arrest you. I commanded. I called down curses on them. I beat some of the men. I pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath. I drove him away. This is so uncharacteristic of him. This is not how he operates. And I think it shows somebody that to me is exasperated. Well, okay. Did I get it? Exasperate, exas- you know what I'm saying. He was worn out, worn out, and I think he was at the end of his rope emotionally. And I think third, you see his frustration, especially in verse 25, where his anger and frustration boils over onto the people who are around him. I do want to say something in his defense, okay? Because in some sense, his actions were not totally inappropriate. Because if you know Nehemiah, we know him by now, right? One of his great strengths is his zeal for God, his zeal for the work of God, his zeal for the people of God, his zeal for God to be made famous, for the word of God, his zeal for all of that, right? And his utmost commitment to obedience and holiness, to him it's a non-negotiable. And we've seen again, he cares so much about the people. And here's what he encountered when he returned. I'm going to show you again those words that were used in there. When he gets back, he encounters evil. Wicked is used twice. In fact, terrible wickedness in verse 27. They were unfaithful to God, verse 27. I left it off from up here, but in verse 27, they were desecrating the temple. Verse 29, they were defiling the temple. And so three times he had to purify the temple. I mean, so there's a lot going on. Do you understand in his zeal why he kind of acted the way he did? I mean, to me, he's like Popeye. He's like, that's all I can stands, and I can't stands no more. Okay, I grew up on Popeye. Who grew up on Popeye? I grew up in the 30s, 40s Popeye. That's the best Popeye, by the way, where he mumbles all the time. Um, He was simply doing what Jesus would do several centuries later when he went into the temple that was desecrated and he cleansed it, okay? Um, So I don't want to paint him in a totally negative light. There's so much good and noble about Nehemiah. I mean, on the back of the book, I have all these character traits of him. There's so much good and noble in him. Um, And we need men and women who are willing to stand up and speak truth, right, and call a spade a spade. We don't have that much anymore in our culture. But I will say, if you're not careful, your zeal for the Lord can cross a line not intended by the Lord you're not careful, your zeal for the Lord can cross a line not intended by the Lord. And it's, this is just me looking at this. I feel like that that very well may be what he did in this chapter. But what I love about it, actually, and again, another reason to like Nehemiah is he is actually just like us. He's not perfect. He has his bad days. He has feet of clay, too. You know, I was a little intimidated by this, this chapter months ago, last summer, even longer ago. 
In fact, when the worship team, when we talked in August and I was lining out, these are the chapters we're going to do which week, and I was giving them kind of the main theme for the week, for this particular Sunday, I just put Nehemiah does a bunch of whack stuff, okay? I didn't know what to do with it. And I realized about a month ago, because I've been thinking about this chapter a lot, we actually need chapter 13. I need chapter 13. Because here's the reality. In our work as restorers, it will frequently be three steps backward and two steps, four, three steps forward and two steps backwards, right? In our attempts to live as restorers where we work, live, study, and play, things will not always go as we expect. And frequently they will go the opposite of what we expect. You'll invest your, your best energy, your heart, your time into people or situations, right? And the effect that you expect, nothing happens. Or somebody, that you see some change, but then they, they drop off and they go clear back the other way again, like even harder than before. People will walk away from you. People will turn on you. People who don't, are not for the restoration you're trying to bring will attack you, Right? People who work with you in this restoration will drop the ball or they won't, they won't keep their end of the, they won't hold their end of the stick up, right? We've all experienced that. And if you're like me, it's hard to not take that stuff personally. You feel used, you feel taken advantage of. Ever been there? You feel like it was a waste of your time, like where was the return on investment that I expected? And frequently when that happens, I think we all feel like a failure. What was wrong with me? Shouldn't that have gone better by the things that I did? But as I thought about this, even more than that, we won't always live as a restorer in the way I expect and desire, right? Many times I will fail my own expectation. the kind of person I should be, right? I think we're all there. I think we know that. I hope so. hope I'm not the only one. So I just want you to know 12th. I think this is true of all of us, but here I am as a redeemed saint of God, a redeemed saint of God, somebody still carrying the vestiges of sin, though I've been delivered from the penalty of sin, thank Jesus for that, and I've been delivered from the power of sin, the flesh still resides me in a sense, and the presence of sin is still with me. And I am still very broken. And yet in that, I am someone trying to join God in the restoration of all things. Just one person, one place at a time. I'm trying to bring the shalom of God into the spheres that I inhabit. I'm trying to be a rebuilder of broken walls that I see. But I'm doing so as a broken person in a very broken world. Do you not feel that reality? That's what Nehemiah was going through. That's what we all deal with every day. So, a few thoughts for us, for you, as you live as a restorer in a very fallen world. Um, the first one is this. Remember, we live in this interesting period of human history. Okay, so we want to live, we live in this time between the times. We live in this very interesting period of human history. We talked about this twice last semester with Yahweh Tzabaoth and Yahweh Rapha, I am your healer. This time between the times, and it's so easy to forget that. We live between the decisive victory of Jesus over evil on the cross and his final ultimate victory over evil at his second coming. 
We live in this hybrid time right now where the kingdom of God has broken, has broken in. We'll come from this direction. It has broken in, but yet the world is still evil and corrupt, right? We live in this very hybrid time. And not only that is the world fallen, but Satan is still active. And he is fighting anybody seeking the restoration of God tooth and nail. He's fighting you tooth and nail. So here's the reality. Full restoration will not happen until he comes. And until that time, the restoration that we can see happen is only going to be partial. It's only going to be partial. So we need to remember, we live in this time between the times. Second, I think remember that this work of restoration is ultimately his. It's not mine and it's not yours. Yes, he's invited us into the work, but it's his work. It's his work. It's, he asked me to be along, but it is his responsibility to bring ultimate change, right? Because only he can work at the level of human hearts. We know that. Only he can work here. So in all of my relationships as a restorer, I have to remember, and this is easy to forget, that he's the heavy, and I'm the lightweight, okay? That he's the heavy in all of this. I do what I can do. I pray a lot. I trust him and I depend on him. But it's his work to do. It's not mine, okay? I can't carry the weight of changing people or situations. It's not mine to carry. And, I mean, we've all been there. When you start thinking it's primarily your job, when it doesn't happen, you feel the weight of that failure so strongly, don't you? So this whole idea is easy for me. And when I, if I'm putting too much on myself, it's easy to just want to bail on the whole thing. You're tempted, like, I'm done being a restorer, right? When you put too much weight in yourself. So I need to remember that as a restorer, and I think we all need to remember this, that what God calls me to is faithfulness, only faithfulness. He calls me to be faithful to the task. The outcomes are left up to him. I can't generate outcomes, but I can be faithful. And that means, third, that this work of restoration requires patience. You have to be in it for the long haul, right? You have to persevere. You have to keep chopping wood. You have to keep loading the wagon. You have to fix your eyes on the prize. That's what this means. There will be inevitable disappointments, but hang in there. Hang in there. When things don't go as you expect, do what Nehemiah has done through this whole book. You take a breath, you talk to him, and you keep pressing on. You stick with it. Because the reality is, is you never know when there might be, no guarantees, but there might be a return on the investment you're making. And if you quit too soon, you may fail to even see that. So pace yourself. With God's help, try not to get too emotionally up or down in this process of living as a restorer. Do what you're called to do, then leave it in the hands of God, okay? Because that's where it belongs. Inscribed on the wall of Mother Calcutta's children's home, the late Mother Calcutta, were these words. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough, but give the world the best you have anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it's between you and God. It's never been between you and them anyway. 
Isn't that great? I like the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where he says, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always enthusiastically, always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Or in the King James that I memorized it, that you know that in him your work is never in vain. Because Jesus rose from the dead and he will come again and he will finish what he started. John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, an excellent book, said something I want to read to you that relates to this. The strength to risk losing face for the sake of Christ is the faith that God's love will lift up your face in the end and vindicate your cause. The strength to risk losing money for the cause of the gospel is the faith that we have a treasure in the heavens that cannot fail. The strength to risk losing life in this world is faith in the promise that he who loses his life in this world will save it for the age to come. This is very different from heroism and self-reliance, which is what we sang about. That's why all of our worship was about dependence today. We risk losing face or money or life because we believe God will always help us and use our loss in the end to make us more glad in his glory. On the far side of every risk, even if it results in death, the love of God triumphs. This is the faith that frees us to risk for the cause of God. It is childlike faith in the triumph of God's love that on the other side of all risk, for the sake of righteousness, God will still be holding us. We will be eternally satisfied in him and nothing will have been wasted. Isn't that good? Nothing will have been wasted. So 12, let's keep living as restorers in a world where we know restoration is going to be tenuous at best. Okay, And where we know that the only guarantee is that in a broken world, people will fail us, and I'll fail myself and people and God, but that the only guarantee is God and His presence and that He promises to be at work, and so we put our trust in Him and we rely on His grace, continually on His grace. And the last one would be this, just stay close to him. You got to stay connected to him. You got to abide in him. You're regularly cultivating with intentionality your walk with God, time in the word, time in prayer, time in community, all the other things that we've seen in, in this book. I've got to keep, stick close to him or else uh, I will trip up in this. So I don't know about you, I needed chapter 13. I needed it. I still need it. I'll continue to need it. And I thank God that he built this into his book. And I want to close with one other reason. This is just going to take a minute. Why I think he finished the book of Nehemiah in this way. Because God is wanting to point us to Jesus. Okay, probably to my fault all along I've been saying every week, man, isn't Nehemiah a great guy? What a great guy. Boy, I'd like to be like this guy, right? And that's missing the point. If, if you think the point is Nehemiah, it's missing the point. Because the book of Nehemiah ends in failure. Just like the whole Old Testament is a continuous story of failure, and it ends in failure. Because the point of the Old Testament, as Jesus said in John chapter 5, is all of it is pointing to me, to the Messiah. That old covenant, you know, the covenant of laws written on stone was never going to change the human heart because the problem with humans, our problem is a sin problem. It's a heart problem, right? 
And the old covenant was to sh- just to show us that, that rules and great leaders will never change anything. And it's to point us to Jesus and for us to put our hope on Jesus, the ultimate, the great restorer. Amen. Who on his return will make everything right. It's all to point us to him. And I know there are people here who are seeking Jesus, who are exploring, being drawn to him. And I'm not sure where you're at with that today, but I really want to tell you, maybe you're at a time where it's time to give your life to him and to say, I've lived my life trying to be a good person, follow rules, all those things. It doesn't change the human heart. What I need is the new covenant of Jesus in Ezekiel that says, where God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit in you, and I'm going to put my law in your heart. I'm going to move you to obey me. I need that. And I need to come to him. So if you're interested in Jesus, I'll be hanging out up here this morning. Come talk to me. Send me a text. Call the office. I would love to talk about what it means to come into a relationship with him. Because that's what Nehemiah is all about, actually, is Jesus the great restorer. So as we do every week, I'm curious, what's the most important thing you learned? There's not a lot of these left. There's actually three more because we have two more weeks in Nehemiah. But if you were to write down, what's the most important thing you learned this morning, most important thing you learned. And what was God saying to your heart? What did you most need to hear? I mean, the level of your soul. What was he saying to you this morning? A word, a phrase. And then what are you going to do about what God's speaking to you about? So, isn't God's word good? Okay, bring these back a couple more weeks. Two things we're going to do that to me are significant in this book. But I would like to invite you to stand with me. I'd like to close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for this chapter. I need it. I have a sneaking suspicion a lot of us need this reminder. So Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're the ultimate restorer, that this is ultimately about you. I thank you for the reality of you in my life, of the salvation you've given me and the forgiveness that you've given me your Holy Spirit to live in this way. And so Lord, help us. Help us to leave the weight aside of thinking this all depends on us and just to be faithful to the task and to stick to it in the midst of all the ways that things will not go as we desire, we expect. So I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for Nehemiah's example. I thank you for how you have just spoken to that reality so clearly. Lord, help us, just give us the strength to continue living as restorers, bringing your shalom to the places where we live, work, study, and play. And we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, 12th, I'm sending you as broken people into a broken world, but keep at it because God wants to use you, okay, through thick and thin. So 12th, you're sent.